This is episode number 262 with Nia Iyer of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high-quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast, Founder Family. My name's Nathan Chan. I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine, and I am coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Um, you can probably tell this from my accent. So let's talk about today's guest. His name's Nir Ayal, and incredible founder. Um, we go really deep on product development and also psychology. So we talked about Nir's first book, Hooked, uh, which is an incredible book, which you definitely need to go and get a copy of. It's it's basically all about how to build habit-forming products. And this is something that we discussed in depth on the podcast because I think it's so easy to think you have a great tech product idea, but how do you make users sticky? Especially when you have a tech product or a product where you're charging recurring revenue you have to make that product sticky. You have to make sure that people are hooked to it. So we talk about all of that, and then we talk about also Nia's latest book that's coming out soon called Indistractable, which basically goes, it's it's flipping the model around how can you fight back against these products like a Facebook that you know, you, are, you you intuitively are wired to it or YouTube, you're always watching videos or like like even your phone, like, like how do you fight back? Because that's how you master your productivity. That's how you become an effective founder. So it's an interesting interview. We're talking about things we've never discussed, you know, 250 plus episodes in. So I think you guys are going to like this one. And if you are enjoying these podcasts, please do leave us a review. It helps us so much. Like I cannot stress this guys. I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart, if you have got value from this podcast in some way, shape or form, 
please do leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, SoundCloud, wherever you are listening. Please do leave us a review and please do share this with any friends that you have that are founders. We want to get this podcast into as many people's hands as we can. And we also want to get any of our content into the hands of as many people as we can because we want to serve you. We're on a mission to building one of the largest entrepreneurial brands online that impacts tens of millions of people every single week with our content. Right now, it's in the millions. We want to get that into the tens of millions. And, you know, I just want to ask because I don't really ask um, for you guys to spread the word that much. Maybe not too much. But anyways, guys, that's it from me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll speak to you soon. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's a, a long and winding story, but I'll give you the uh, the short version. The short version is that I started a couple of tech companies, and the last one was in the advertising and gaming industry. And uh, that is an industry that... Uh, let's face it, it's dependent on mind control that uh, those two industries, you know, advertisers don't spend all that money for their health and gaming companies are really experts when it comes to manipulating user behavior. And I, I had this vantage point of seeing how companies change people's behaviors through the products they design. And I wanted to figure out what was it that made some companies so good at this, uh, this, these techniques of changing user behavior while others failed. And so I really wanted to understand the deeper psychology behind how products are designed to be habit forming. So I started blogging about uh, habit forming technology and what I was learning to answer my own question. And then that led into a class that I taught at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business and then later at the design school there. And then that class turned into a book, which I then published. It's called Hooked, How to Build Habit Forming Products. I published that about five years ago now. And uh, then, yeah, that leads me to today. Now I'm publishing another book uh, about the other side of the story about uh, distraction and how do we make sure we put distraction in its place. And that book will be out in uh, the the fall of 2019. It's called Indistractable. Interesting. So, yeah, I really want to talk about Indistractable and and really – why what compelled you to write that book but before we jump into that i'd love to hear about the two companies that you started what what exactly happened did you exit them are they are you still running them are you just on the board like talk, talk to yeah, me yeah so that yeah, so the first company was acquired by a private equity firm. It was a solar energy business, uh, and we started that. We had really good timing around starting that. We we started back in 2003, uh, back when almost nobody was doing solar energy, at least uh, uh, not in any large scale. There were a few people left over from the Carter administration back then that thought that solar was really cool, but uh, uh, we, we managed to start that company, and then uh, later it was acquired. And then the second company was, uh, as I mentioned, the in the in the advertising and gaming space, uh, and we started that company with several co-founders that I, I met at Stanford, uh, and uh, we ran that company for a few years until it was acquired by another company, and that company was then acquired by Yahoo. Oh, wow, interesting. So, um, when it came to, I guess the like the game like the. The advertising space you would you guys were doing um, like advertising for games, or you actually producing games as well? 
No, we were actually, so the gaming companies were our clients. We were uh, an ad network for games. So we were placing ads inside apps. But back then, apps didn't mean iPhone apps. There was no Apple App Store back then. Uh, apps meant Facebook apps. Ah, uh, yeah, that was a big thing back in the day. It was a bit before my right. time, before I knew this space or anything at all was was across it. But yeah, that was a big thing, right? It was a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, you could build an app and then, you know, overnight, a million people would start using your your Facebook app. And, uh, you know, a lot of them were very frivolous and silly, but uh, they gained traction very quickly. And 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 more most importantly, I think they they demonstrated some really interesting principles of consumer psychology and how we can design products to change people's behaviors and their habits. Yeah, interesting. So can you let's talk about some of those principles. I know you cover it in your first book, Hooked, and that's actually quite an iconic book. Um, it's very, very well recognized. Like a lot of people in my team have read it. And yeah, like uh, let's talk about some of these principles. Yeah, absolutely. So the hook, uh, the, the, the hooked model is really about answering this question of how does a company connect their product's use to a customer's problem with enough frequency to form a habit? And uh, what I did through through these years of researching, what is it about some companies that makes them so sticky and so habit forming while other products you know, are easily forgotten, uh, is that these products that create habits all have hooks embedded into the product design. And a hook is this four-step model that starts with a trigger to an action to a reward and finally an investment. And what we find is that through successive cycles through these hooks, this is how our preferences are shaped, how our tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold. I'm very, very familiar. Like when I think of like great product um, development, I think of a concept called lock-in. Like uh, you know, like some of the best email service providers, they're so good uh, because yeah, you, it's just so difficult to 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 get out of them. Like you know, you they they're, they're tied to your business and and a big part of your business's success and the revenue it generates because email is so powerful. And the, and once you once you get started, once you get integrated, once you build all these crazy automated campaigns, and you've got all your all your you know your community on there, and you've got all their their profile like data around tagging and what they're interested in, it's very very difficult to ever want to move. So, would you say that you know this this form of lock in is is that four step process? So that that can be part of it. Uh, it's part of what I call the investment phase, where the user puts something into the product that makes it better with use. Now, there there are some instances where the investment does create lock-in, but I was really fascinated by the companies that don't necessarily uh, embed themselves in that way. For example, if you think about Google, yes, you know Google has about ninety percent market share, and I would argue that searching on Google doesn't have much lock-in. You know, there's, it's not like a, 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 an enterprise software that once the company starts using, it's very hard to rip it out and, and change. Uh, and yet, you know, we, we, what, what, every day when you want to know some information uh, and you have a question, if you feel this sense of uncertainty, you Google it with little or no conscious thought. And this is why habits are such a competitive advantage, that if you have the kind of company that people use out of habit, they don't even consider whether the competition has a better product, right? We don't ask ourselves, hmm, I wonder if Bing has a better search engine. I wonder if DuckDuckGo is any better. No, we just Google it with little or no conscious thought. 
And that's amazing to me, right? How does a company form a habit through the use of a product? It used to be that companies would create habits, create preferences uh, through display advertising, right? The reason you see so many Coca-Cola commercials or whatnot is because they are creating this, this preference through what's called the mere exposure effect, right? The more you see a brand, the more you see a logo, uh, a tagline, the more affinity you have for it. This is called the mere exposure effect. But if you think about it, you know, these companies like Facebook and Twitter and Slack and Instagram and WhatsApp, none of these companies spend hardly any money on advertising, right? It's a drop in the bucket how much they spend. What's different about these companies is that they don't create habits through advertising. They create habits through the product experience itself. And that's really special. Uh, it's through this four-step process, the trigger, action, the reward, and the investment. That's what creates these habits. It's not, uh, for many of them, it's not necessarily lock. And of course, for some of them, the investment phase is very important uh, and makes it difficult to switch. But for many of them, it's just simply creating this mental habit that when I need XYZ, I turn to this particular company. Yeah, I see. Interesting. So like, um, I don't know the correct stats, but I've I, I've read it somewhere that that Twitter worked out that if somebody, um, as long as they do their first status update or 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 their like their fifth or thirteenth tweet or whatever it is, there's a certain number that that's when they know it's going to be like they've got you. You're going to be a user or, you've, or you're sticky. Is that do you, do you, yeah. right? So it was a number of followers. Yes. Yeah. Number exactly. Of followers. I actually talk about it. In Right. I talk about it in my book, actually. it's I talk about this. Uh, there's this chapter on uh, habit testing. How do you figure out what habit to form around? And uh, so part of habit testing is finding the habit path, which is what is it that your habituated users have done? What threshold have they reached in interacting with your product that makes them very likely to become habituated users? So what you do is the first step is to identify. You find what things they did before they became a habituated user. Then you codify, you understand those steps that they, they took, and then you modify. So identify, codify, and modify. So then you then modify the experience, the user experience, so that everyone goes along that same habit path. And this is exactly what Twitter did, right? They figured out that if you could follow, if you followed X number of people on the site, you were much more likely to become a habitual user. And so today, if you were to sign up for a brand new Twitter account, guess what? One of the first steps is, hey, there are all these famous people you really should follow. Uh, what do you think about following them first? Yeah, I see they got that in the onboarding. Right, exactly. Yeah, I see. So this is like hardcore product development yeah, so you're either a product developer or you're you're a founder because founders like they're usually the product developer and the visionary, right? So this this is definitely about about how to build these kind of products, right? It's really about how do we design them. Now the good news is that you don't necessarily have to be uh, an app developer to use these techniques. That companies both online and offline can use many of these techniques. And the idea here, you know, I. I use Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and you know these companies as the the models as the case studies. But the idea is that we can use them for good. Uh, in fact, the I do these two case studies in the book uh, of companies that use the hook model. And the two examples I give of companies who actually use the hook model, because remember, you know, uh, Facebook didn't use the hook model. Twitter didn't use the hook model. They were my examples. Uh, that I drew from in order to demonstrate how the hook model is used. But of course, they didn't use the hook model because the hook model didn't exist back then when they started these companies. But companies in the book that did use the hook model, there are two that I show 
The first one is the Bible, (laughs) the Bible app. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's an app called the Bible. Uh, It's used by over 200 million people, uh, probably more by now. And you can see how the product uses these four steps of the hook model. Another app that I, that I know that for a fact they use the hook model is called FitBod, which is an app that helps people develop healthy habits in the gym. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's really about developing, you know, how can we take the same psychology that these, uh, the game makers and the social media companies use to keep us hooked? How can we use that same psychology to help people live better lives, to build healthy habits? Interesting. Can you just talk me through what FitBod do exactly? Because that's interesting. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll give you a very personal story here. So I uh, have always struggled with physical fitness. I, I was obese at one point in my life, and I just I was never very athletic, and and I uh, really struggled with with doing anything physical because I just hated it. I just did not enjoy uh, exercise in any form uh, until I found this app called FitBod, and I. I, I played around with this app. I can't even remember how I found it. I probably found it, you know, poking around the, the app store and I decided to give it a try. And as I used it, I, I thought to myself, wow, this is brilliant. I mean, they have nailed all four steps of the hook model, the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment. And so I actually, uh, emailed them and I said, Hey, I, I'm just curious, you know, have you possibly read my book? Because this is just uncanny. And they wrote back and they said, yes, in fact, we read your book and we designed the app with these principles in mind. So, uh, the, 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 it, it's interesting in that, you know, I, I actually wrote a few years before I found FitBod. I wrote an article on my blog called why fitness apps are making you fat because I was so frustrated. The, all the fitness apps out there were awful. They were not habit forming at all. Uh, and what, what FitBod really does differently. And I think really is, is quite brilliant is that they don't target the person who doesn't go, who, who doesn't want to go to the gym. Currently, a lot of fitness apps, they target people who are complete couch potatoes. And, and, and that's very hard to do because they, they're not targeting a very specific behavior. Whereas FitBod, they target a very specific problem. The problem is a person like me who says, man, I really would like to enjoy exercise, but I don't. And a big reason that I didn't enjoy exercise is because I would get to the gym and I wouldn't know what to do. And so this is called an internal trigger. There's two types of triggers, internal triggers and external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all the things that prompt you to action. Internal triggers are negative emotional states. So in my case, I would go to the gym and I would you know, look around and you'd see all these muscle heads and people who knew what they were doing in the gym. And I'd stand around like not really knowing what to do. Well, that this is what FitBot is for. It's not for getting you into the gym. It's for the person who's already in the gym and feels this uncomfortable emotional sensation of uncertainty, insecurity, right? Every habit forming product has to find that emotional itch that it caters to. And so that's the, that's the internal trigger for FitBot. The action is to open the app. Just that, just simply open the app. That's the habit. Every time you feel insecurity, uncertainty in the gym, you open the app. The reward is that the app gives you a pre-programmed workout that tells you what exercise to do, how many reps to do, how many, how much weight to lift. Uh, it tells you everything you need to do. That's the reward. And then there's a bit of variability. We find that in, you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, all of these products 
have what's called a variable reward. It's almost like a slot machine-like mechanic where there's uncertainty. So there's quite a bit of uncertainty in the variable reward when it comes to FitBot around, you know, what's the exercise going to be? How many reps do I have to do? Am I able to do what the app told me to do? There's all this challenge and variability associated. And then finally, there's the investment phase. And the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of some kind of future benefit. So in the case of FitBot, every time you do an exercise, every time you, you, know, you lift any weight, you have to enter it into the app. You confirm, this is how much I did. You know, did you do what the app recommended? So that entering of data makes the app better with you so that next time you go to the gym, it knows already what you should do based on your previous workout. So not only does it have your information saved from last time, it uses that data to tell you what to do next. So for example, if you go on a Monday and you work out your upper body or whatever, it's going to not recommend that you do that same exercise on Tuesday because it knows that your muscles are still sore. So it uses that investment to make the product better and better with use. And so that's the complete hook, the trigger, the action, the reward, and investment. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Um, so look, I'm mindful of your time and I want to switch gears and talk about your latest book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Um, it's It goes around psychology, so it's kind of a similar theme, but um, it's kind of the reverse. Uh, like, how, how do you avoid this stuff? Uh, so I'm curious, what compelled you to write this book? Yeah, this is, so I, I write books because I am looking for answers to questions uh, that I don't find a satisfactory answer to. And so uh, the question around Hooked was, how do you build consumer habits? How do you build habit-forming products? And the, the, the question with Indistractable is, how do you control your attention and choose your life? And I had this question because I found that my attention was being controlled in ways I didn't always like. And I, I did do what I always do whenever I have a question I need an answer to. I, I buy every book on the topic and I start reading them. And most of the time I get the answer I'm looking for, for, for the, you know, the questions I need answered in life. But, but this one, I, I felt like I was getting a lot of bad advice. So every book that I read on the topic of distraction, on focus, uh, basically the, the, the central message was get rid of the distraction especially when it comes to digital devices, right? If you find that you're distracted because of your iPhone, well, then go on a digital detox and digital minimalism and, you know, a digital Sabbath. And what I discovered was it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is, is, is a few reasons. Number one, this stuff isn't going away. You can't avoid it forever, right? It's like, it's like going on a, a, a crash diet. Uh, you know, what happens after you say, I'm not going to eat junk food for 30 days what happens on day 31? Well, ah, you know, you gorge on day 31. So what, what was the point of that? Nothing. The second thing that I found is that I relied upon this stuff, right? I need to use these products for my livelihood. Uh, it's nice if you're a professor, you know, most of these books are written by professors who don't have social media accounts. Many of them don't even use email. And so that's, you know, that's very nice for you if you have that kind of luxury. And the third and most important reason that that, 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 that advice didn't work to just abstain from these devices was that it didn't address the underlying psychology of why I was getting distracted. And so what I found was, you know, I'd put my cell phone away and I'd start reading a book that I'd been meaning to catch on up on. I'd, uh, I'd start writing for a bit on a word processor that I bought without an internet connection. And I'd start folding the laundry or take out the trash. I would constantly get distracted by something because I hadn't dealt with what was going on inside me. And so what I realized was that, you know, I started writing a book about digital distraction and what I ended up writing about 
was a book around answering this question of why don't we do what we say we're going to do, right? We know what to do. We know we should exercise. We don't. We know we should eat healthy. We don't. We know we should be present when we're in a meeting. We should be, you know, present in both body and mind. And yet we find ourselves working on our on our email in the middle of, you know, dinner or or in a meeting. Uh, we sit down on our desk and we say, oh, we're definitely going to work on that big project and you know finally finish that presentation. And yet we find ourselves Googling something or you know on a Slack channel instead of doing the work we know we need to do. Why is that? Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? And so it's really a book about distraction, about the psychology of distraction. Because I felt, man. If I could just do everything that I know I should do, wouldn't that be a superpower? So that's really why I wanted the answer to this question. Interesting. So what did you find out? Like how, how do you become indistractable? Yeah, so I, I referred back. You know, Part of the nice thing about being, a, uh, being the guy who helps companies build habit-forming products is that I know the Achilles heel of distraction. And so part of this draws upon some of the similar – uh, psychology that I described in Hooked to break these bad habits, to make sure that we do what we say we're going to do. So part of it, the, the most important thing you can do is to understand your internal triggers and to master them. And, and what we find is that if you get used to using a distraction to stop discomfort, then you habituate to it. Your brain automatically goes to whatever it is solves your pain even if it doesn't serve you, even if it's against, against your best interests. And so, you know, what I find is that if we don't deal with that, if we don't first start with what it is that I, what is it that I'm trying to escape? What's the feeling, right? What's that icky sticky truth that I don't really want to face that keeps me from doing what I say I want to do? Why do I keep escaping? And so that's the first step is to understand and master these internal triggers. And I give all kinds of techniques of how do we overcome these internal triggers. That's the most important thing. The next thing that we can do is to make time for traction. And I talk about how important it is to plan your day. And there's a lot of techniques. This can be very difficult for some people, but it's, an, it's absolutely critical because if you don't plan your day, someone else will. And moreover, we can't complain that something is distracting unless we know what it is distracting us from. So we have to start planning our day. Then the next thing is that we can hack back the external triggers. We talked about those external triggers earlier, you know, the pings, the dings, the rings, all the things that pull you towards distraction. So we have to know how to, how to hack back those external triggers. And Hooked, I talked about how companies hack your attention and hack your behavior. Well, in Indistractable, I tell you how to hack back. And it turns out it's actually not that hard, right? That there's some very common sense things we can do, not only on our, on our desktops and on our phones, but also in our workplace environments. One of the biggest culprits uh, of distraction is open floor plan offices, right? So we need new techniques to make sure that we don't get distracted as we're doing our work so we can do what we say we're going to do. And then finally, the last thing that we can do is to make pacts. Uh, packs are a very old technique. They date back 2,500 years. So there's all things, kinds of things that we can do to use what I call an effort pact, which makes doing the thing we don't want to do more difficult, a price pact, which exerts some kind of cost. And then finally, and perhaps least understood, is what I call an identity pact, how we can actually change the way we view ourselves, the way we define ourselves to make a pact with ourselves so that we can do the things we really want to do. So the four basic steps, again, are master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, 
And then finally, prevent distraction with packs. Interesting. So um, I'll give you an example. If we could run through like a, an example or something that I face, uh, if that sure. would be cool. Like, so yeah. I'm really into my health and fitness. I try and train at the gym at least, uh, a combination of gym and boxing at least, you know, four to seven times a week. A good week will be wow. seven times. A bad week will be four. And um, yeah, I really, I really enjoy the boxing component now as well. And I've got a trainer, et cetera, et cetera. And I really try and eat uh, really, like really good food as well. Cause I don't want to go like have all this time that I'm putting into working out, uh, go to waste. So, you know, I try and, um, prepare my meals and, and try and eat healthy food, uh, for all, all the time. But, uh, one thing I do like to do is I really like to eat tasty food. Like I really like going out for a nice dinner and just, it's just fun. And it's just kind of like, it's something I like to do. And I also really like, uh, to have a, you know, um, beers with, with mates or, or have a, have a drink with friends. And, uh, for me, I can't really just drink one drink. I'm more the kind of person that, uh, yeah, likes to, likes to have a good time and have quite a few drinks on that particular night if we, you know, if we it's at a wedding or something like that. So these are kind of two kind of, I guess, habits that I have formed where, um, let's just say like, you know, I don't, I, I might have like a, like a nice dinner or like um, really fancy, like a tasty kebab or what you might we might pronounce it kebab, uh, you know, re- really tasty, like <laughs> I, I once, get it. A week, once a week, you know, maybe on the uh, weekend or something. So like, how, yeah. how do I man, like, what can I do around that, that, that particular, um, I guess, bad habit that I've, uh, that right. I have. Yeah. So the first step is to decide the difference between traction and distraction. So traction is anytime we do what we want to do, things that move us forward in life that are consistent with our goals, things that we do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, right? Anything that we do out of, uh, that we, we do without intending to do it. So the, the fact is, if we don't learn these techniques, then we will constantly be swayed, whether it's because uh, our boss wants something to do something, because uh, uh, our, our spouse, our kids, social media, the news, uh, a, a restaurant that wants to sell you something, uh, a drink that that's wants, you know, a bar that wants to sell you something. So if we don't plan ahead, if we don't understand what it is that we want to do with intent, then we will constantly be swayed. The world is just too much of a tempting place for that not to happen. And I really think there's gonna be a bifurcation between people who understand these skills and understand how to be indistractable and people who whose lives are dictated and run by other people and they're constantly being manipulated. So the first step is to decide for yourself, and only you can make this decision, is what is traction for you? The idea here, the reason that abstinence doesn't work is that for many people, it's not that it, never works. But for many people, they really struggle with, with, uh, with abstinence. And I would argue, even if they're able to be abstinent around some things, you can't be abstinent around everything, right? You can't be perfect all the time. Sometimes it's perfectly okay to indulge, right? There's nothing wrong with enjoying a few drinks if it's what you intended to do. So the first step is to decide for yourself what is traction versus distraction. If you're going out with your mates, it's perfectly fine to have a a nice meal. It's perfectly fine to have one, two, or three drinks. There's nothing wrong with that. The question is for yourself, 
what do you intend? Think beforehand what it is that you want to do, whether it's something that you uh, want to do or something you don't want to do. For example, I want to go to the gym versus I don't want to have that, that second piece of cake. Okay, so that's the first step. Then once we understand for ourselves what it is that we want, whether it's with our time, whether it's with whatever we eat, whether it's with our activities, once we know what it is we want to do, then we just work our way around this, these four steps. The first step is to understand these internal triggers, right? When we do overindulge, when we do do something that we don't intend to do, what is the uncomfortable emotional state that we are trying to escape? We have to understand that question. This is a fundamental point that we have to come to grips with. If you don't want to exercise, you're not in the mood to exercise one day. Well, what's the feeling you're trying to escape, right? If uh, if if you find yourself overindulging in in a, in a meal that you didn't intend to, you're eating junk food when you didn't want to. What's that feeling you're trying to escape? Many times, it's not what we think it is. For example, so you mentioned with food, you know, many times people say, well, you know, why did you overeat? Well, I was hungry. But it turns out that's not really why we overeat. We almost never eat in this modern world because we're hungry. We eat because we are scared of being hungry in the future. We are escaping something that we don't like to feel, whether that's boredom, whether that's loneliness, whether it's anxiety. Food is one of these tools that we use to escape discomfort. And, and I know this personally, uh, having been obese at one point in my life, you know, it, it wasn't what I was consuming, it was what was consuming me. So that's the most important step. And unfortunately, it's the, the step that we don't like to face. It's so easy to blame the substance. It's so easy to blame the food. It's so easy to blame our technology. But at the end of the day, if there is no internal trigger, if we, if we know how to cope with that discomfort, nobody can make you do anything that you don't wanna do. So that's the first step. The second step is to make time for traction. So I would argue that going out for a nice meal and having a few drinks, there's nothing wrong with it as long as you plan to do it. So this is where we literally put it on our calendar, right? So that we're doing it with intent and then enjoy with it, you know, enjoy that, that experience. So for example, you know, if it's having a nice meal, if you have that on your calendar that I'm going to allow myself, you know, once, twice a month, whatever it is that you want to have that indulgent meal nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be totally fine as long as you did it with intent. Same goes for overindulging in social media, for example. So for, my, for me, I have time on my calendar every day when I make time for social media. I can check YouTube. I can check Facebook. I can do check whatever I want. That's time that I have budgeted to do that activity. And I turned something that was previously a distraction into traction because that's what I wanted to do. Then what we have to do is to remove the third step, you remember, is to hack back the external triggers. So, you know, if you find that you overindulge on food, then it's too late to try and do something about it when the chocolate cake is at your lips. You've already lost the battle. They're going to get you. It's too late. So what you want to do is to make sure that in those times when you're likely to become uh, distracted to do something that you didn't intend to do, that you have removed those external triggers, that they're not in your face all the time, right? Whether it's on your cell phone, removing the notifications, whether it's, you know, not keeping unhealthy food in your home, the, we want to remove those external triggers. And then finally, the last thing we can do is to 
to prevent distraction with packs. And this is really the line of last resort. This is what we do after we've done the other three steps of mastering the internal trigger, making time for traction, and hacking back the external triggers. The last thing we can do, we should do, is to make packs with ourselves, right? So this is where we can exert, we can have some kind of cost if we do to prevent us doing something we didn't want to do. So for example, this is an extreme example. If this was really important to you, yes, and you said, look, I, I only want to to drink uh, one night a month. I don't know. I'm just making this up. Yes. If we made a bet that if you drank more than one time per month, that you would owe me $10,000, I bet you you won't do that behavior anymore, right? Yeah, 100%. Because there's a cost to you, 100%. Well, then we can't blame the food or the drink or the substance or the media if all it took was a bet, right? Yes. And remember, you're not paying it if you do what you wanted to do. So we can use all the, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm giving you the super short version. The book is 200 pages and there's lots and lots of techniques in it, but these are just a tip of the iceberg of some, of some different techniques that we can use to make sure that we do what we say we're going to do. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah, lot, lot to think about, lots going through my head around kind of why I do it and that kind of confronting that and then also some of the some of the things that I need to think about when it comes to, you know, that 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 traction piece and setting myself up. Um so yeah, just I, I'll tell you what typically doesn't work. Uh what typically doesn't work is 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 pure abstinence. Uh, you know, people, we, people like to quote, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a pure abstinence program and it can be effective for some people, but you know, the, the success rate on a program like Alcoholics Anonymous is reported to be around 12%. Uh, and, and, and that's horrible, <laughs> right? 12%. And part of the reason is that it's not true that people need to go cold Turkey forever. You know, in, in fact, it turns even with addictive substances, right? When you think about nicotine, it turns out most smokers are not addicted, believe it or not. Most smokers are social smokers. They smoke once in a while. Now, they don't account for the majority of the cigarette sales. And God forbid am I saying that cigarettes are good for you. No, no, no. They're definitely horrible for you. But I'm making the point that 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 uh, that that pure abstinence doesn't work for everyone. And it doesn't work because of what's called the white bear effect. Uh, so there's this study that found that, you know, when you ask people not to think about a white bear, I guess the fact that they can think about nothing else but the white bear, that's all they can think about. <laughs> so in, in many ways, this, this habituation to uh, these behaviors that we try and restrict ourselves, it's almost like if you think about when you, when you pull a rubber band, okay, you pull it, you know, let's say you hold a rubber band between your fingers and you pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it, and then you let go it bounces back the other way, right? It doesn't stop from where you started. It goes back the other direction. And so if you think about it, if you pull and you're trying to resist, 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 and say, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then when you release, the release itself feels good. The, the, the release of the discomfort of wanting, of craving, in fact, feels pleasurable. I mean, cigarettes are a terrific example of this. There's nothing that feels good about smoking a cigarette. There are sensations, but there's nothing inherently fun about the effects of a cigarette. It stinks. It's disgusting. I mean, there's nothing good about it unless what is provided from that cigarette is the relief of the wanting, of the craving of, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. Okay, fine. That feels good. 
So we have to be very careful about abstinence, whether it comes to media, whether it comes to substances, when it comes to indulgences, we want to make sure that, that we're, 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 we're doing it in a thoughtful way. Yeah, I love it, man. And I, I, um, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, things like, you know, how can I be, how can I use this framework to be a more effective founder? And when I think about, you know, what would be relevant to our audience as well is like, I think, um, the tool Slack, I love it, but I have a love-hate relationship with it because it, it is so distracting. And we have a remote, like a distributed kind of hybrid hybrid distributed team. And yeah, it, it is a habit-forming product and you're just always trying to be on there and always getting your alerts. And I feel like I always need to be across everything that's going on and we've got you know, like 35, 40 people on there and it's just always going, 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 going. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting that you mentioned Slack uh, because it's actually Slack is a case study in my book <laughs> ah. uh, because everybody talks about Slack like it's this, you know, thing that causes so much distraction. But interestingly enough, you know, you, you would expect if, if it's the technology that causes distraction, then you would think the companies that use it the most would have the biggest problem with distraction, right? I mean, right. You, would, you would imagine that, that if Slack was the problem, if technology was the problem, then at Slack headquarters, man, probably nobody can get anything done. But that is so not true. Because when you walk into Slack headquarters, the first thing you see is a big neon pink sign that says, work hard and go home. So it turns out in my research, what I thought was a problem with technology turned out to be a problem of corporate culture. That if you work at a company where people can never disconnect, where people are run ragged because they feel like they're always having to be on all the time, I am telling you that is a symptom of a bigger problem. That distraction at work is a symptom of dysfunctional culture. You have skeletons in the closet at any company that is struggling with distraction because at companies where people have these, these, this culture where people can raise their hand and say, hey, I don't like this, right? This is a problem. We should work it out, right? And, and it's a problem like any other problem. The thing is that at companies that can't do that, where, where people feel like if they raise their hand and say, hey, you know what, I, I, I didn't sign up to, to be on my computer at 10 p.m. every night. Like, that's not what I signed up for. Some companies like Slack, you can do that. You can raise your hand and raise a concern and they solve the problem like any other problem. But at companies that, that use technology too much where people are distracted, what I found in my research was that these companies have the kind of cultures that lack what's called psychological safety. That people feel like if they raise their hands and saying, hey, you know, this is really not working for me, they're afraid of retribution. They're afraid they'll be th thought of as lazy. They're afraid they'll be fired because they're not team players. And it turns out that it's not just about the distraction. It turns out they feel that way about everything. There's all sorts of skeletons in the closet that they're not sharing with the rest of the team. And so that's really the lesson that I learned from writing this book is that distraction in the workplace is a symptom of dysfunction. Mm, that's fascinating. Okay. So, um, all right. Well, look, where can people go and grab a copy of your book? We have to work towards wrapping up. Uh, where's the best place? 
Yeah, so uh, Hooked is available wherever books are sold. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that's the case in Australia as well. It's called yep. Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my next book, Indistractable, will be available in October of 2019. And uh, please check out my website. Uh, in the meantime, I publish articles about this topic of psychology, technology, and business. Uh, my website is called nearandfar.com, but near is not spelled how you think it's spelled. Near is spelled like my first name. So it's N-I-R near and far nir and far.com awesome well look thank you so much for your time near this has been a, a really fascinating conversation i've learned a ton uh there's some things that i have to go away and implement and uh yeah i can't thank you enough for your time and uh yeah for sharing thank you so much my pleasure this was really fun thank you hey guys i hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.